Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover 1 Corinthians 16, starting with verse 22, and going all the way to the end of the chapter, the last verse of which is verse 24. I've entitled this section, Paul Says Farewell to the Corinthians, in which he tells them to act like men. We start with verse 12. Well, our context is this, in the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells the Corinthians to look out for Timothy, to to give him a warm welcome so he doesn't have any time to fear. He gives him some of his plans. He plans to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, and he's hoping to come to them in order to get to Jerusalem by the next Pentecost, and so forth. So basically, he's wrapping up his letter to the Corinthians. So we start now in verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 16. About our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. Now, the reason that Paul says about our brother Apollos is because in that letter that the first Corinthians, that the Corinthians had sent earlier to Paul, probably carried to him, by the way, by Stephanatus, Stephanus Fortunatus and Achaicus, in that letter, the Corinthians had asked Paul about several things, for example, about eating meat to idols, about whether it's good to get married or not, that kind of thing. And Paul would answer those questions one by one by one, and this is one of the things he's answering about Apollos. And the Corinthians were wondering, where is Apollos? Now, remember Apollos, when he got kicked, he, uh, Apollos was one of the uh, earlier people who had ministered to Corinth, and people were following him. Remember in the factional list in First First Corinthians 1, chapter 12, Paul says, each of you says, I'm with Paul or I'm with Apollo. So he was obviously held in high esteem by some of the members there at Corinth, and they wanted to see him. John Gill says Apollos had been at Corinth before. I don't know how Gill knows that, but I'll take his word for it. And now he is apparently in Ephesus as Paul is writing this letter, and so that's how Paul strongly urged him to go see the Corinthians. Now, Paul wants to show the Corinthians, look, I did everything in my power to get Apollos to come to you. I was not trying to hold him back because he might take away some of my, of my glory in Corinth. I wanted him to come to you. And Paul didn't want them to be to think that he was trying to keep the popular Apollos from the brothers in Corinth so that it would save Paul's popularity. He also didn't want them to be disappointed in Timothy, who was coming to Corinth, as Paul had earlier told them. And he didn't want them to be disappointed in Timothy because Timothy was so timid. Of course, Apollos was a great orator, as we know. So Paul is saying, hey, I tried to get him to come. But now, why did Apollos not come? He was not at all willing to come now. Well, the speculation is he probably didn't want to come because the church is all riven with factions and disputes and strife, and he didn't want to come at that bad time. We don't know. That's just a speculation. We do know that he was not willing to come. That he was not willing to come shows that Paul the Apostle did not have control over his fellow apostles' movements. They were their own free agents before God. They made their own decisions as to where they were going to go and when they were going to go. There was no papacy amongst the apostles. But he says, Paul gives him a consolation prize. He says, but Apollos will come. He will come when he has an opportunity. When he gets a chance, he'll be there. Now, Paul says that he wanted, wanted Apollos to go to Corinth with the brothers. Now, these brothers, we don't know who they are. The best speculation, I think, is Jameson, Fawcett, and Browns. It's probably Stephanus, 
Fortunatus and Achaicus, the three brothers from Corinth, who probably had brought the letter over to Paul, the letter that Paul's answering in 1 Corinthians, and then returned the answer in 1 Corinthians, which was 1 Corinthians, back to Corinth. And Paul probably told Apollos, hey, why don't you go over there with Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus and return to Corinth. Now, who these brothers are, I've looked at some speculations. Basically, nobody knows. We recall in the previous verse, in verse 11, which was the last verse of our last audio, Paul had said this, Therefore, no one should look down on him, look down on Timothy, send him on his way in peace so he can come to him, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, those are other brothers coming with Timothy back to Corinth. I don't think those are the same brothers as here that he was sending from Ephesus back to Corinth. I think that's other brothers. Could be the same brothers at different times. We don't know. Nobody knows. I don't know, and I don't care, frankly. We go to verse 13, 1 Corinthians 16. Paul tells the Corinthians, Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like a man. Be strong. Why do they need to stand firm in the faith? Because there were false apostles there, denying the resurrection of the dead and causing division and strife and so forth. It says, act like a man. Oh, such old-fashioned rhetoric. Act like a man. Today, we would say, oh, don't act like a man. That's toxic masculinity in our hyper-feminized, wussy-puss culture that Gloria Steinem and her merry band of feminists have forced it upon us. And unfortunately, the wussy-puss evangelical church has sucked right up. Is that the way Paul talked? He said, Be, act like a man. Nothing wrong with that. Be strong. Because men are traditionally, on average, stronger than women, physically. And so there's your metaphor right there. Be strong. Why do they need to be strong? Well, because there's a lots of division, a lots of garbage in the in the Corinthian church, and it needs to be stood up against. Paul is probably, according to John Gill, quoting Deuteronomy 31.6, where Moses says, or God says to Moses, actually Moses writes this, Be strong and courageous. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't be terrified or afraid of them, for it is the Lord our God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. That verse is quoted in Hebrews, of course, one of my favorite verses. God will not leave you or forsake you. And that's why we need to be strong and courageous, because God's always going to be with us. Application time. How many times do we need to be strong and courageous in your grubby little life down here on the planet? Every time you turn around, you're pre presented with trials and conflicting conflicts and and forks in the road, you got to decide which way to go, and you don't have enough courage to take the left fork, and then you, you consider the right fork, and the situation, the results from that choice will probably be just as bad, but you got to choose something. you got to be strong. you got to be courageous. Here's some other relevant scriptures, Isaiah 46, 8. Remember this, and be brave. Take it to heart, you transgressors. King James for be brave is show yourselves men. Oh, show yourselves men. Oh, oh, that's sexist. I'm sure that the little wimps who now control evangelical, the evangelical church culture would say, oh, that's offensive. We've got to change the translation. Well, most of the translations do change it. They say, be brave. Second Samuel 10:12. be strong. We must prove ourselves strong for our people. King James translates it, let us play the men. Ooh, that's one time I, I like the King James translations when we get to those kind of translations. Now, I mentioned earlier that Paul in this verse says that he wants the Corinthians to stand firm. And I said I think it's probably because people are denying the or doubting the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. We can see that by looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. 
You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you. In other words, they're thinking about ditching Paul's doctrinally correct teaching. We go to 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Your every action must be done with love. Now, this shows that there's no contradiction between being strong and acting like men in verse 13 and showing love in verse 14. In fact, love is not just moonlight, magnolias, chocolate, and roses on Valentine's Day and sweet nothings in the air. We have this romantic view of love. Love means sometimes you've got to do you've got to do something. It's not just a feeling, it's doing something. Jesus did feel good about us when he went up on the cross. He did something. He gave his life. And that was love. And don't you think it took a little bit of bravery to get up there on that cross? Bravery, acting like men and love is not contradictory. If it is, it's because you've got the wrong idea of manhood. It's nothing God made two sexes, and there's a lot of good characteristics in the masculine sex, which I never mentioned today. Those We've got to remember that, and we've also got to remember that love is not wussy puss. Love means action. Love means showing somebody, some, doing something for somebody that helps them. Your every action must be done with love, Paul says. Every action, not just some, all of them. 1 Corinthians 16, 15 through 16, brothers. Again, Paul's still calling the Corinthians brothers. He calls them brothers all the way through the gospel, even as he chastises them for a loving Greek philosophy and rhetoric too much, for having divisions in the church, for not exercising church discipline with the guy that's sleeping with his mother-in-law, for dividing the church up into factions, for for dividing the church over tongue, or just screwing up the worship service by stomping on each other with tongues and prophecy, by not believing in the resurrection of the dead, by causing the weaker brothers to stumble, what an absolute mess the First Corinthian church was, and yet Paul continues over and over again to call them brothers. Brothers, you know the household of Stephanus. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. So Stephanus and his household, which might include his servants and his relatives, his wife and so forth, his family and his servants, they're all serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. Now, this is interesting because the word submit there is hupotasso, and that word is usually used in the sense of formal, literal submission as in rank authority, as in the military, as in we're supposed to submit to the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, as in a wife submits to a husband, as in a child submits to his parents. It's a strong word. It's the only time we have somebody in a non-family situation or a non-apostolic situation. Sometimes we're supposed to submit to apostles every now and then. You'll see that not often, but sometimes. But when it comes to one Christian to another Christian, you don't see that word, hupotasso, that strong word, except in this one instance. So how do we explain this? Well, the NIV Study Bible says apparently Stephanus received very little respect from the Corinthians. Perhaps because he was associated with Paul is my speculation. But at any rate, they weren't respecting him. And so Paul is not asking the Corinthians to submit to Stephanus as a church leader, which we never see anywhere else in the Scripture. It's always it's mutual submission, if you will. Nobody, You don't submit to the church elders. You cannot prove that. I'll hold that thought for a minute, but I can tell you right now, you can't prove it. But I think what Paul is saying is, Hey, listen to this good man Stephanus' advice. You know, we don't even know that Stephanus was a leader at Corinth. He might have been, but he might not have been. John Gill says he may have been a leader in giving alms to the poor. Adam Clark says this, quote, The submission here recommended does not imply obedience, but kind and courteous demeanor. 
And I think that's exactly what it is. He's not saying submit to the pastor pope in your church. Now you might say, ah, oh, you just said that there's no way you can prove that we're supposed to submit to the elders. I'm sure you're thinking of Hebrews Hebrews 13, I think it is, where we're supposed to obey the elders. Never in the history of translation has a passage of Scripture been so mercilessly and erroneously translated. This is in Hebrews 13. There's two passages there. The word for submit is, or obey sometimes it's used, is pistero. It's from the form of pistero, which means have faith in. And basically what it means is to have faith in your brothers. I've gone through a long discussion of that, and we'll do so when we get to the relevant passages in Hebrews 13. But uh, many times in house church conferences, when we have to talk about church government, everybody says, oh, but we got to have somebody in charge here. And, and instead of having mutual submission and consensus government, we got the elders or the pastor ruling the church. And it's a hard thing for people to get past that. And a lot of it comes from the, the unfortunate translations of Hebrews 13. But that's for another subject. Let's just say here that Paul expects everybody to respect Stephanus, submit to his opinions. Now, why is it easy to submit to Stephanus? Because he's devoted, he and his household have devoted themselves to serving the saints. You know, women who have trouble submitting to their husbands, and I, there's good reasons for that, because some husbands are jerks. Either they're passive wimps who won't take responsibility, or they're abusive, domineering Neanderthals who are banging their fist all over the place, or you may be banging on their wives or something and doing something immoral. And it's hard to submit to somebody like that. But if you've got somebody that's godly, like Christ, well, that's a lot easier to submit to. And you notice the fondness here is devoting himself to the saints. So if you're a pastor and worried that nobody gives you respect, and nobody submits to you, nobody listens to you, how about try this? Instead of harping about your authority over them, try serving them, serving the saints. And guess what? It's real easy to submit to somebody who's serving you. Real easy. You worried about your kids not submitting to you? Try serving them. It's interesting where Paul says here that Stephanus and his household have devoted themselves to serving the saints. The King James says they are addicted to serving the saints. Addicted. I like that translation too. So Stephanus is leading by example, which is the way the elders of the New Testament church, the pastors led in the New Testament church by example, as is, is very easy to prove if you were doing a Bible study on that. I've actually done a YouTube video on that very subject of consensus church government. Now, Paul says that Stephanus and his household were the first fruits of Achaia. Achaia is Greece. Here's what Paul did in Greece. He, before he went to Corinth, he was in Athens, and he didn't have a lot of success there, but he did have some, Acts 17:34. However, some men joined him and believed, joined Paul, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, we don't know anything about Damaris. We don't know anything about any of these guys. But Dionysus the Apogite, his name was used by forgers in the Middle Ages to create this philosophical document that St. Thomas Aquinas quoted from a lot. In fact, everybody in the Middle Ages quoted because they thought it was real. They thought Dionysius the Apogite had actually written it, which he hadn't. So that's why that guy's, na guy's name is famous. is because somebody used his name to forge something. But at any rate, that's a couple of converts there. Then Paul goes down to Corinth. Then he gets Stephanus. He baptized Stephanus because he was the first convert. And so they were they were the patient zero. If you're talking about the spread of a virus, you got to find that first person who has the virus who comes into contact in your country. That's patient zero. I think they call them. Likewise, when it comes to Christianity, there's somebody that gets in that culture and gets saved. And the next thing you know, the gospel's spreading. 
We go now to verses 17 and 18, 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says, I am pleased to have Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus present, because these men have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, recognize such people. So it's not only Stephanus, but also Fortunatus and Achaicus, who are to be recognized, and I think that's what Paul meant when he says, submit to Stephanus. Recognize their good actions and their good words. They've made up for the Corinthians' absence, of course, the whole church at Corinth wasn't there at Ephesus, as Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus were. They weren't there. The Corinthians weren't there. And so Paul is missing something. In fact, absence in the NIV is translated as what was lacking. They have made up for what was lacking. Well, what could have been lacking in terms of the Corinthians? Well, their physical presence wasn't there. And actually, that's how the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it. They, the three brothers have made up for you Corinthians' absence. But it could be also be uh, the affection of the Corinthians was missing, and the three brothers provided that for them. That's the NIV Study Bible's take on it. It could be that the three brothers made up for what was lacking in financial donations from the Corinthians. Now, I don't believe that for a minute, and John Gill doesn't either. He said, Kate, refer to money. Because Paul had never taken money from the Corinthians and never would, Second Corinthians eleven seven. Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? It could be that Paul was lacking information from the Corinthians and the three brothers supplied that information. That, that was what was lacking was information. He wanted news about the Corinthian church. So that word absence is actually a narrow translation. It's probably a little bit looser than that. It could be something else that the Corinthians could have given Paul that he didn't have, but that Stephanatus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus gave him. But at any rate, whatever it was they gave him, they refreshed my spirit. They have refreshed my spirit and yours. Apparently they were serving the church over there. The NIV Study Bible here says they refreshed yours, perhaps through their willingness to get Paul's advice, 1 Corinthians, and take it back to Corinth. Well, but the problem is, is they have refreshed the letter to the Corinthians hadn't got the first Corinthian letter had not gotten back to Corinth yet. So I don't know how they in the NIV study Bible handles that tense because it sounds like past tense. The NIV study Bible says that perhaps a new relation, a new relationship with the Corinthian church was perhaps in the making. Well, but that's in the future. But the tense here sounds like the past. I haven't looked at the Greek. I suspect it's past, not future. So I don't know. We go now to first Corinthians 16, verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you. Now remember, Paul is writing from Ephesus. Ephesus is in Asia. Asia is the, the, the western coast of the Anatolian province, present-day Turkey, which was called Asia at various times. And that's what Paul is referring to. And what churches were there? Well, we know the church of Ephesus, of course, but also the churches around Ephesus. For example, Colossae was just the river back into the interior. Laodicea was back there. Hierapolis was another one. How about the seven churches of the book of Revelation? They have become famous because of that book. The church at Ephesus, I've mentioned, Paul was there. But how about the church at Smyrna, the church at Pergamum, the church at Thyatira, the church at Sardis, the church at Philadelphia, and the church at Laodicea? All these churches. See, Paul's been there for two and a half, three years, been sending people out, teaching, ministering, evangelizing, and churches have sprung up all over Ephesus. And so Paul says, I'm speaking for all of them, and I'm going to, and I'm sending you their greetings. By the way, Sardis is one of those seven churches of the book of Revelation. It was a very famous town in ancient history. That's where the Persians, when the Persians controlled the area, when they were getting ready to fight the Greeks, they always sent a, 
satrap to govern from Sardis. Sardis used to be the capital before when the Persians took over the Lydian capital where Croesus was. Sardis was where Croesus was. In fact, Sardis got burnt down once the Greeks attacked Sardis at one time in the early 5th century B.C., and Darius did not like it, and he told his slave, remind me every day about those nasty Greeks who burnt down Sardis. So, at least that's what, how the story goes, as Herodotus tells it. Sardis was a very famous town. We'd read it in Revelation, and we'd just say, oh, that's Sardis, what is that? Well, no, it was, it was, it was smarter, and I think I saw on Wikipedia, it's still there. It's a big Turkish city. But at any rate, Ephesus, the ruins are still there, and that's some place that everybody ought to go see. It's a, it's a fantastic place to visit. You feel like you walk right back into a time machine, back into the, into the ancient world. And it's because Ephesus was on, a, on the Caesta River, which dumped into the Mediterranean Sea, and it was constantly silting up. And so when things got bad, they would, move the, they would rebuild the city further inland, and they would keep doing that. And they, so they did build on top of one city on top of another. And therefore, the ancient city never got covered up when it finally died. Things got too bad, so it's still there. We go down to verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 16. All the brothers greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now there might be some kind of distinction between the church and Aquila's home, which is going to be mentioned here in just a minute, and all the brothers, meaning all the brothers in all those churches I just mentioned. Obviously, all the brothers in all the churches couldn't meet in Aquila's house because the church was spread out in houses all through the through Asia there. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The, the adjective holy is attached probably to distinguish it from a profane kiss where, for example, a man might kiss a woman with romantic intentions. No, this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a kiss separated from that because that's what holy means, separate, separated unto God. This is a kiss showing that you love your Christian brother or sister, except it was probably done one sex to the same sex, I imagine. I don't know. We do know, according to the NIV Study Bible, that Kissing each other like that was a practice customary in the ancient East, and it was also customary in the early church. As the NIV Study Bible and Adam Clark point out, it may have been used in the first century A.D. synagogue also, as those two authorities mentioned. But in the synagogue, it was men kissing men and women kissing women. And so it was a very natural thing that the practice continued. It's purely a cultural thing. It doesn't mean we should kiss cheeks today. They do in France, spreading the coronavirus at every chance they get. I read that they've ceased doing that now in France temporarily until the virus is under control. They actually kiss in the air right next to the cheek. That's close enough. But that's just cultural. We shake hands today. There's nothing theological about that. Contrast the woman's head covering. Now, that was a non-cultural theological thing because Paul kept saying, whatever that head covering is, and I believe it was a woman's hair, that's not cultural, folks. That's because it shows submission as the, as the man is subject to the Jesus and Jesus is subject to the Father. That's not cultural. That's theological. So you have to make the distinction. But there's nothing theological about how you greet somebody. The creation order of Adam and Eve, actually 1 Timothy 2.12, because Adam was first created and then Eve, that's not cultural. That's why women shouldn't teach or exercise authority in the church. It's not because of cultural things. So don't get those two things mixed up. Now, when Paul says all the brothers greet you, he could be talk, talking about all the brothers in the Asian church over there. He could be talking about all of his fellow apostles. Doesn't matter. 1 Corinthians 16, 21, Paul says this, This greeting is in my own hand, Paul, which shows that the rest of the letter was written by an amanuensis, a secretary. Paul normally signed his letters, for example, the letter to the Colossians, Colossians 4, 18. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. The letter to Philemon. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. He might have written that whole letter, actually. It's so short. I don't know if he had to use the secretary for that, but he signed it with his own hand. 
He actually wrote it with his own hand. 2 Thessalonians 3.17, This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. So Paul signed the end of the letter. This is a sign in every letter. This is how I write, Paul says. Why does he do that? Well, he's trying to stop forgeries. Paul was well-known in the church as one of the leaders of the church. And it would be easy for a heretic to start forging his name and saying, This is what I'm saying. There's four persons of the Trinity, and I, Paul, say this. It could be a fake letter. In other words, fake news. We actually have a name of one of Paul's amanuensis in Romans 16:22. We read this. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So the amanuensis, the secretary, just kind of took a chance to say, hey, hey, I'm giving you greetings also, not just Paul. We go to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 22 through 24. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Maranatha, that is, Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. He signs off in verse 24. My love be with all of you. He loved those brothers. He had to to put up with all the garbage they were dumping on him. Remember in one place Paul says, in addition to all these trials, I have my concern for my daily worries about the church, daily concerns about the church. Well, I bet the Corinthians, I don't remember, I can't remember where where Paul said that, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was thinking about the Corinthian church because, by golly, they were a load of worry. There was they were nothing but trouble with those guys. He even postponed seeing them because it would be too painful to go see them at one time. But he loved them. He stuck with them, and by golly, he redeemed that whole church. I remember one time I led this young Chinese uh, woman, uh, well, she's really a girl. She's in her 20s or so, to the Lord, and the girl had a checkered family history and she was really really messed up and she caused so much trouble and she made me so angry at one time that i said i will not talk to her ever again one year i refused to talk to her till she calls me up from china i was in in the states oh can you help me come to america you know i said yeah you're using me to come to america after you've not listened to a word i've said about joining a church and you know doing the proper thing being civilized and, of course, she elopes with somebody when she gets to America. But, you know, every all of my friends said, you need to quit. Just quit with her. And I thought about it, of course. In fact, I didn't talk to her for a year. But I thought, yeah, but, you know, what's going to happen to her? She's going to get really messed up. And she's going to be abandoned, you know. So I would keep praying. And except for that year, I would keep trying to, you know. One time she said she pretended to be an atheist. One time she tried to run off with a fellow language student of mine. It's kind of an elopement. Oh, what a stink that was. Golly. I mean, it was just one thing after another. And so, so anyway, to make a long story short, she's now happily married to an American guy. They've got a kid. I think she's actually going to church now after 10 years. In other words, I didn't give up on her. And I probably should have. And I had a lot of friends saying you need to. But I didn't give up on her. And lo and behold, she's strong with the Lord now. She never left the Lord. She pretended to be an atheist one time just to bug people, but, you know, she never actually left the Lord. Paul didn't give up on these Corinthians. We need to remember that because it's real easy to give up on people. I just gave up on another somebody in China. She was also a young uh, Chinese woman about, uh, I don't know how old she was. I can't remember. This is several years ago, and she had a death wish. She was trying to do dangerous things with surfboards and rough seas and jumping off cliffs and climbing mountains she she, she had she said she had a death wish she she felt it was immoral just to bump herself off but she thought if it was an accident that would be okay you know it's not immoral you, and, oh you talk about depressed and you talk about screwed up she had already wrecked her marriage or at least it was wrecked 
And so I would start talking to her about the Lord, and she was the same old crap. And I said, okay, well, that's it. She's, you know, hopeless. Two years later, she contacts my wife because I didn't have the WhatsApp. And my wife gave her my WhatsApp address, and she contacts me. She says, I just want to tell you that I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus now, and I just want to really thank you for listen, for you listening to me about all my stories, about how I almost tried to to sort of kill myself, and it was the only time I wasn't depressed because I was talking about something besides depression. And I thought, well, you know, don't give up on people. Now she's leading other, she's doing internet Bible studies with other women in the, in, that have the remains of her church, which is busted up by that wonderful Chinese government, communist, atheist, and she's doing real well. So the Corinthian church straightened out. So Paul stuck with them, even though he didn't know how, what the response to this harsh letter he's writing them he doesn't know what the response is going to be but he signs off by saying my love be with you all he cared about him he cared about him enough to tell him the bad news and folks that's another thing love is not enabling people if you got somebody doing drugs you need to tell them you need to stop that or you're going to die paul says now let's go back to verse 22 paul says if anyone does not love the lord a curse be on him when i first read that i thought oh my gosh paul is cursing people that don't love Jesus. I thought we were supposed to pray for people who don't believe in Jesus. Well, actually, Paul's not really cursing somebody. There's two ways you can look at that. You can look at it as an imprecation. Hey, curse be on you. Oh, I curse you because you don't follow the Lord. Or, Adam Clark denies that, or it could be a prediction. In other words, a curse is going to be on you if you don't love the Lord. And that's actually true. And it's a warning. Hey, you better love the Lord or you end up with a curse on you. And that's, of course, what we do when we witness. We say, hey, you don't believe in Jesus. There's sanctions. There's hell, for example, or a life of no help from Jesus because you don't care about him. So so it's either an imprecation or a prediction. Adam Barnes, not Adam, I'm sorry, Alfred Barnes it says that it's a prediction. Here's a quote. It expresses what ought to be done. It expresses a truth in regard to God's dealings, not the desire of the apostle. This is just going to happen. You're going to have a curse on you if you don't believe in Jesus. Ellicott commentary says this is, quote, the abs- he says this, quote, the absence of love to Christ is condemnation. You automatically condemn yourself when you don't love Jesus. So I don't think Paul is lowering, lowering a curse on anybody's head. Then he says, Maranatha, which the Holman Christian Study Bible translates for us, that is Lord come, that's what it means, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, same word is used at the end of Revelation. What does it mean to come? Well, there's two options on that. It could mean to come in judgment in 87 and destroy Jerusalem, as in the Olivet Discourse. John Gill suggests that, and John Gill says, or it could be the second coming. We don't know what it is. It could be either one, but the point is, is we need to patiently wait and endure in our waiting as we wait for Jesus to come to deliver us, because it's real easy to start thinking, how long, O oh Lord, am I going to have to put up with this? Now let's finish this audio with Paul's statement here, verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Grace, unmerited favor that Jesus has given us. We all know what that means and is used in all of Paul's epistles, as John Gill says. I haven't actually gone through and back and checked Gill up on that, but I'm sure it's true. Every epistle, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And of course, the fact that Paul used that phrase all the time, is, is it can be used as a proof to show that Paul wrote the letter that he's saying that in. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now finished the book of 1 Corinthians. In our next audio, we will start in 2 Corinthians, a different letter. And I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.